This week on Mobile First, a conversation with Ali Wing, Chief Marketing Officer and EVP of Digital Channels at Maurice's. Where we figured out, hey, there's an entirely different set of psyche and emotional connection between certain activities in someone's life, like a woman in fitness, than it is necessarily sports game competition for for football um, for men. And we had to actually tap into that in order to figure out how to do good marketing. And if you go back to the early days, was we came out with the first sort of inward-looking fitness focus. Welcome to Mobile First. This is a weekly podcast that digs into the mobile strategy, user insights, and technology driving the latest in business innovation. This podcast is brought to you by Emerge Interactive. I'm your host, Jordan Bryant. Every week, I talk with today's biggest thought leaders leveraging mobile. We'll gain insights from their experience to help your organization truly become mobile first. Now, in this episode, we explore how to use consumer insights to achieve an omni-channel brand experience with our guest, Ali Wing. We hear about Ali's history being the founder of Giggle, the multi-channel retailer, wholesaler, and licensor of baby products from startup to scale. We'll dig into her use of journey mapping to connect and empathize with the consumer, all while keeping tethered to her passion for branding and an emotion-based relationship with the consumer. You'll find bonus tools, expanded information, and key takeaways from this episode on our website, EmergeMobileFirst.com. For a quick and effective way to level up your mobile strategy, again, that's Emerge mobilefirst.com. Hey, Ali, thank you for spending some time with us today. I'm very excited to have you here. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah. So Ali Wing is the Chief Marketing Officer and EVP of Digital Channels at Maurice's. Ali started her career with Nike in marketing, Nike Women and Sport Casual, and later moved into corporate development, Nike and Nike International. From creating brand, marketing, and digital strategies for venture capital-backed multi-channel retail concepts like Gazoontype, to founding and launching Giggle, a multi-channel retailer, wholesaler, and licensor of baby products, Ali's passion and legacy is brand building and innovation. So Ali, how about you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, I'm in addition to building these fun brands that I've been lucky enough to spend my career doing, I'm also <laughs> um, married and have a 13-year-old boy. And by definition of that, um, who happens to be kind of a computer gaming kid, I, I have no excuse but not to be very, very current on the world of technology in today's consumers because I live with it as well. Yeah. yeah. Sort of as a family, we're actually, my husband, son, and I originally from San Francisco spent the last 12 years in Manhattan. So we're just new transplants to living in Minneapolis for the first time. So we're, as a family, um, getting used to our new little city. Yeah. And how do you like it? What's kind of the biggest change for you? You know, it's funny. I spent the first part of my career at Nike and my husband and son weren't with me at that time in my life. But Living in the Twin Cities reminds me a lot of my life in Portland, working mm-hmm. for Nike. Um, it's sort of, instead of Mount Hood, you have lakes. Ah. But it's very artsy, foodie, outdoorsy environment, and it's a nice little lifestyle for my husband and son who really only know Manhattan or San Francisco. It's a big culture change for them. Yeah, definitely. And so I, I'm smack dab in the center of Portland right now, and uh, that's one of those cultural shifts I notice every time I make that, that transition over there, too. So that's, that's funny to see that you've made that and how you've had that in your, in your family. So that's, that's really cool. And so with these transitions and, you know, how you've gone from Portland to, to now Manhattan and, and um, really traveled to, to the tech cities, you know, at what point in your life did you become interested in, you know, brand development and retail and, and really walk us through these transitions that you made from, you know, getting out of college right into retail? 
Well, I, I would say that I never, I fell into brand at the ripe age of 20. So it's, it's the one constant in my whole career because what I have done very differently than a lot of people is done big company, growth company, turn, fix it company. But the common denominator is that I, I sort of accidentally fell in love with brand, brand strategy and brand development um, when I sort of happened into Nike. Um, so I grew up as a small town kid from Bozeman, Montana, and I'm one of 10 kids um, and first generation of education. So um, the definition of going to college, if you were somebody like me, and I'm the third oldest, was to get a scholarship. And I got a scholarship to a small liberal arts college called Lewis and Clark, mm-hmm. which happens to be in Portland, Oregon, and kind of in the backyard of Nike. But I was a small town kid, and so I worked at night as a waitress. And it turned out the head of my department there also was the um, Asian economic advisor for Nike at the time. And he convinced me to quit waitressing and to come start working while I was in college for Nike. And honestly, you know, almost a decade later, the rest is history. I, I sort of, I had a job offer waiting for me when I left college and they sort of said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you guys are known for marketing, so I should sort of try that out. And years later, when I look back, I will tell you that I just fell in love with this idea of building the relationship with the consumer, not just seeing a problem to solve as a marketer, but actually solving it in a way that changes them, your relationship with them as a business emotionally as well as practically um, that leads to the business success. And I I just, I fell in love with that. So you were formally educated in marketing and finance, correct? So you you had some marketing sort of brand-ish background? Well, I did that after Nike, really. My undergraduate degree was international economics and communications, which you might say was kind of marketing, but honestly, I was a debate scholarship kid. So that kind of came (laughs) more from that side of it. I actually went back to graduate school after Nike and got my MBA at Kellogg, really the premier marketing MBA, right, mm-hmm. um, with a focus in finance. And I also got my corporate securities law degree. So I did that later. I see. So what was that aha moment then through that Nike experience that you know led to this passion of connecting with the customer and, and understand the psychology of the customer? And so what, what was it that, that led you to that? most visible memory. So I was at Nike in the 80s, just to give you context. And (laughs) you have to remind everybody that back then, Nike actually didn't have Nike women's. And while we all know and quickly could say as such an established, successful, multi-decade brand now as Nike, we know it's kind of stands for testosterone sports. (laughs) But what was that going to be for women, right? And we were trying to figure out what this Nike women's line would be. And what we quickly realized that if we went out and hired then great tennis star Steffi Graf and put Steffi on a pair of shoes, women didn't flock to those shoes like men did when we went and got Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. Deep evaluation where we figured out, hey, there's an entirely different set of psyche and emotional connection between certain activities in someone's life, like a woman in fitness, than it is necessarily sports game competition for for football um, for men. And we had to actually tap into that in order to figure out how to do good marketing. And if you go back to the early days, I'm most proud of and will probably remember as the beginning of this aha for me was we came out with the first sort of inward looking fitness focus. I'm not my mother. I'm not my sister. But it was all about women close to you strategy that Mm -hmm. developed very different products than we'd ever had and our most effective first women's marketing campaign. So how did you tap into that strategy and identify this? 
Well, you know, what was what were the activities or actions that you took to really identify that, oh, we can't approach it the same way that we've approached uh, this the men's category. We got to do it this way. Well, I'll, I'll joke with you a little bit and tell you there's probably more truth to this than not. But a lot of times it's when you make a mistake and then realize you got it. Wait a minute. What did we miss? <laughs> and I think the first version and it was ahead of me before my time when I came in, but they'd already realized doing what they did for men didn't work. Right. right? They weren't getting the same results. So and I say that a little bit as a joke now, 30 years later. I still see that. A lot of times that's actually one of the most active muscles you have to use in brand and marketing is to kind of recognize when you got it wrong and then go back and challenge your assumptions. But in today's world, what I would describe you would do is you actually have to do what most people call is journey mapping and understanding what's going on for a consumer to get from A to Z by the time they make decisions like, let's say, take on a hobby or an activity that lead to the purchase of a particular product. And then of all the ones out there, how do they pick a particular brand, right? Mm -hmm let alone how do they then become a repeat customer. And the exercise that a brand marketer would do is what I would call journey mapping and go back and, and you do that through a combination of market research, data analysis, which today, I mean, what I can do today, I would have killed to be able to do in the 80s. You didn't even actually have access to a lot of that data then, but today data is everything. And, and it's still matched with what I would call most marketers would do what's insight studies, so focus groups, as most consumers would know it. Gotcha. Okay. So the, the user journey map allowed you to kind of map out all these different touch points along that user journey. And then that's where you start to identify some differences. And that's from there, you ran like focus groups. Is that kind of the path oh. that was? Okay. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Those focus groups would help us validate because what you find out in any journey map is not all intersections are of equal value. So right. what you'll figure out with a focus group is which ones really end up being the gating points in the journey where you have to really bring to bear something different maybe than your competitors are or different than you ever were thinking about before. So it's interesting. I mean, you're coming from a very like uh, psychology, like user experience design focused mentality. And I'm curious, you know, coming from you know, marketing and finance to making this transition and really having this perspective, what do you think is driving this perspective for you? I think my personality I think it's partly personality and then there's a skill set combination that come to bear. Mm. Personality-wise, I fundamentally love people. Like, I'm, I'm intrigued by people. I think there is a sociologist in every marketer. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you really have to be, I don't, my best work was not necessarily the best product for Alley Wing. It was the best product for the target market that I was trying to solve for. So in that, you kind of have to be willing to study those people. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a personality. I think there's a lot of different careers and backgrounds that get you there. I would argue today that some of the best data scientists leading marketers, a lot of them have sociology backgrounds. So it's not as uncommon anymore as we're starting to kind of see the world of hypothesis and research match with data meet with strategy. It's just not actually what you saw the last decades do. Right. I think on a skill perspective, there's two things that I consider my 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 must haves or my personal strengths, but I also think they're not at all accidental to somebody who ends up loving brand. I'm kind of an equal, my brain is equally art and equally math. <laughs> okay. Right. I, I love the look feel and how it all comes together. And let's take an example, like the one we both know is probably the most famous, right? Steve Jobs. Yeah. Um, the guy was clearly a businessman, right? But he, from A to Z, believed in beauty. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And great brand lovers share that both sides of their brain that way. So do you think this is something that's intuitive to you or is this something that you've you've worked for or there's things that you do in your day to day that, that help you uh, drive this mentality? I think there's predisposition. I, like I will tell you that it was years 
of being in business before I think I recognized my art love as much as my math love. And that's because I was busy getting educated and learning and being a good student and gotcha. building skills and putting tools in my toolkit. <laughs> but if I go back to it and, and you ask me and you, or you asked my mother, she would say back when I was <laughs> 10, I was color coordinating in a different way than other kids. Right. Or, um, so, you know, I, I had affinities for it, but I'm, I didn't go down the path as a designer. Right. Right. And so you think that's part of then the environment in your upbringing where your, where your parents creative, very creative mindset, or did you kind of break, you know, break out of that? It's so funny you asked me that because I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. <laughs> and I've never thought of it quite this way, but my mother, the mother of 10 got married at 17. Her outlook to all of us was we had really cool, creative homes. She huh. was very visual. My dad was an entrepreneur. So probably I, I'm, I'm a genetic offspring of their, that duo. <laughs> yeah, I, I truly believe that, you know, you're a product of your environment and whether you like it or not, you know, whether it's, whether it's you rise above something and you do something opposite because you're, you're wanting to do something completely different or you succumb to it because it's just, you know, it's part of your, your being, you know, so that's why I'm just exactly. curious. Yeah. And so, um, you know, with, you know, you had this, this entrepreneurial inspiration and this creative inspiration and you had, it sounds like a great support system with all your, your uh, brothers and sisters, you know, so what, what inspired Giggle? And cause that's, that's something where you've devoted so much time and energy to, and you've done an amazing thing with it, you know, all the way from concept to this, this massive impact. So what, what inspired it? And then how did that, that pursuit turn into what it is today? Well, the ins- I'm hugely influenced by who I am, and that was influenced by my family, but I wasn't actually a mom when I got into it. And that's important to say because I think a lot of people, often women that have developed concepts in baby, did it after they became a parent. I actually did it much like I'd done every other brand problem solution I'd done so far. So if you think about somebody like me who spent 30 years as a brand marketer serving very different markets... By definition of who spends money, I've mostly been serving women. Mm. And at that point in my career, I'd grown up kind of serving women focused on fitness and lifestyle. And when you really look at women, women go through ages and stages. And a huge part of that, particularly when it comes to things like fitness and lifestyle, is when they transition their bodies through pregnancy and motherhood and then try to be back to fitness, right? right? And how they manage all that. So I'd started seeing some early research when I was at Nike that was saying, wow, the impact of women having babies later is affecting this, the, the way women are thinking about access to kind of control things, which you might not have thought of 20 years before, mm-hmm. um, is changing what they want as products. And then I left and I was helping another company called Gesundheit, which was a Stanford MBA's concept. And it was kind of think, relax the back for better breathing. I very practically had a moment in time. I was doing my market research, the typical journey mapping, like I mentioned earlier. Right. And I started looking at sort of the average value of transactions when we sold the products that were sold to parents for their kids that were suffering with allergies and asthma. So think like dust mite barrier bedding or things like that. And what I started to see is I had three times the average value of transactions every time we sold to a parent for their kids. So I started to dig into it a little bit more. And what I figured out was you kind of had these three broad trends happening. You had parents getting older, so they're not necessarily having kids when they're trying to buy their first sofa. They've already bought that, so they're more ready to purchase for kids, right? Mm -hmm. Two, you had parents, it was the era, if you could, you could sort of shortcut and describe of, let's say, Whole Foods, right? It was when people started saying for the first time, uh, maybe the things that are in the products expect, uh, affect our health, right? So there was this first association where, and where we really always, you know, age old truism, right, is we're better at doing for our kids than ourselves. So people were more vigilant about it for their kids and themselves in the early phase. And then the third was that you had 
was the same era, I think late 90s, early 2000, where all of the big box retailing was getting really big. So we were getting good at selling more and more and more of everything, but not necessarily edited, curated. So what I, those three trends led me to say, what you actually have is this growing concern for better products, consumers able to spend on it, looking for it, clearly willing to spend a multiple for it, and yet you don't really have a retail environment that's helping them sift through the clutter and say, I'm going to make sure your products are organic or they're not mm-hmm. going to have bisphenol A in the plastics or they're going to be things that we don't use and dispose as much or they're going to be more developmental. And that was the genesis of Giggle. Gotcha. Okay. So it's so you have this really interesting perspective in growing up and that led you to really tapping in and getting unique insight into just this information, into this data and research of the market. It sounds like you took a very data-driven approach to then seize this market opportunity. And so that, that, complete, that makes complete sense. And so now a Giggle has come to fruition and a lot of startups fail. You know, most of them fail, majority of them fail. And so how did you take Giggle from your, your concept to scale to what it is now? Was it hitting at the right time with digital or, or what allowed you to scale to the level that it is? Well, and I will tell you off in my view of the world, right? It's not nearly as big as I ultimately want to see it get. And now I'm rooting <laughs> for it as an investor, right? right yeah. um, but yes, I definitely went well beyond concept and proof of concept to early scale. And I had some great wins in that. And I'll, t- I'll share with you a couple of examples. And I had a couple of big headwinds. Um, so the big wins were that, yeah, I was very early because, of, because I was working in the Silicon Valley helping other people with concepts. I was uniquely positioned that I was a 15 plus year mature marketer, but I I was very, very comfortable in the new world of how channels were going to evolve. So we were born omni-channel, right? Mm. Probably 10 years before anybody called it that. (laughs) So I always approached the solution as consumers are going to want it in different channels, not just, it's not just a retail concept. It's not just an online concept. It was a brand concept. And then we were going to make it available how they wanted it. Right. So I think that was a big, unique, um, I was able to have that foresight because of the time we were in. Second, probably big win is that I really, really was passionate at a premium level. I'm not even sure my foresight was big enough um, that specialty as a category was going to feel a lot of pressure. So you really had to own more and more of your own products. Mm. And I originally went out with the concept of kind of being edited and best of. But as players like Amazon were coming on or diapers.com, they were going to be sort of bigger, faster at bringing lowest price. So if they could get the expertise from us and go get it somewhere else, that wasn't going to be a very good product category for me, right? Right. I think the next big thing we did is we really started building great product lines. And that was critical to us becoming a licensor that actually had a big scale for imprint so that we could help build great, better products. Because part of the problem I was trying to solve really didn't have enough of those better products yet. Right, right. So those were two big wins. I think the headwind that I experienced, and it was hard, um, and it ultimately influences why I decided that there came a point where I'd probably done my stage of it. It was time for me to go build again, mm-hmm. um, is, you know, I started rolling out the retail piece of it basically the year before the crash. Mm, gotcha. So that's a complex time to have secured a lot of leases and then try to go grow them. And it just took longer and was harder. So I was asked recently by some of our employees, what, what were my big lessons? And I, I always say there are three big ones. Number one, it's what everybody says about building a business. Timing is everything. Mm-hmm. So you kind of got to go back to your true grounding as a marketer and say, all right, some pieces are right. Some pieces are wrong. Probably the only guarantee in a startup is some of it's wrong. Right. So what do you got to go against? Right? Yeah. So timing, timing, and be willing to... Um, learn from your mistakes quickly, sort of fail fast, if you will. And then I think the next big one is to really understand that 
more people than not will think most of what you're doing is wrong when you're first building it. So figuring out that right balance, as a marketer, you're trained to listen and learn and filter. But as an entrepreneur, particularly the earlier on the innovation curve, you have to listen and then decide not to listen. Right. Yeah. You actually have to anticipate. What's the rule? And there's What's a the fine line on that. Yeah, it's a really fine line. So you have timing and then understanding what the, the rule and exception are. So really listening to the market and filtering that. And then what's the third? So the third one was, is that whatever your plan is to go do, and this is as true now that I'm back in multi-billion dollar company and trying to build big initiatives is whatever mm-hmm. I think of the innovation will be, will take longer, be harder and have more cycles than you'd like to think in your first pass at it. Gotcha. They, okay. they take longer and are harder. I don't know if you've read the book, um, you know, the kind bars. Did you read his book, the founder's book? Uh, no, I haven't. No. It's a great book and it's a great read, but my best um, quote to you, which I just think he's great at is he jokingly says, yeah, everybody talks about my overnight success, but it was a 24 year startup. Yeah, I have heard that. No, I've heard that. I th- so I'll, I'll find this book and link to it in the show notes too. So everyone can check it out. But I think that's, yeah. that's incredibly important. So I just wanted to reiterate, cause I think these are, these are really big points. Timing is everything. Um, more people, so really filter the market. So number one, timing is everything. Number two, filter market feedback. And then number three, everything takes more. Yep. <laughs> Innovation cycles, everything takes longer. So everything just takes more. So I think these are really three, three big points. And especially when, you know, a bigger organization is trying to do a new initiative, you know, these having that, that startup mentality, which is why I wanted to dig into to Giggle because um, you, you scale really fast and, and with the downturn of the market, you know, still being able to maintain what you have and, so I thought that was really interesting. And a lot of companies that I've talked to, you know, they're having trouble in making that transition to the omni-channel strategy. And what I found through the research is, you know, how you've approached omni-channel from the beginning and how that's, I think, played a lot to your success because you've considered where everything was going before it went there. And that was ingrained into the identity of the company, which I think is amazing and super smart. So with that, yeah, what, so what, what channel? So when you were approaching this strategy, you know, and now that you're in Maurice's, you know, and, and these larger, or larger organizations are making the shift to this omni-channel that may not have conceived it earlier on. What are some of the things that you're seeing that are tougher to implement the an omni-channel strategy and think about it more holistically across the bigger organization and things that um, were easier for you to implement and giggle and the things that you're pulling from that experience to implement? It's a great question. And let me, let me recast it just slightly to tell you that the thing that I did right at Giggle is I always was trying to solve a brand solution for a consumer segment, and then I figured out what channels were right. And in that era, it was going to be multi-channel or what we now call omni-channel. Okay. Now, that is a good context to what now is the challenge in a bigger company that grew out of, let's take Maurice's, 87 years of history of being a retailer first. Right. So these businesses, and there's a history, right? And retail is probably the most dominant example, but they, they grew up through a channel and because they got decades at that, a lot of them became brands with that secondary meaning, but they grew up having been sort of their DNA is, where do you put a store? Where else should you put a store? How do you build a right kind of store? What's the experience in the store? What products are in it? Right, right, yeah. They didn't necessarily start and say, who do we want to go after? How are we going to go after them? And in what channels or what different ways should we deliver that service to them? Mm. I give you that as context because that's actually kind of is the overarching complexity of where I am. A lot of what I'm doing right now, and I was brought on to do three things. So let me outline those for you and then I'll tell you what's hard. Okay. <laughs> Number one is, I, Maurice's is a billion dollar brand that you, you and I might both say is a billion dollar best kept street secret. Okay. You think about it. How many retailers do you know that are out there that have a thousand doors that if you 
that most people have never heard of. Right. Yeah. Right. So Marisa's if you shop us is adored, but if you don't shop us, we have a three to 4% unaided awareness, which hmm. is amazing for a thousand doors in North America and a 85 year history of profitability. Right. Yeah. So problem number one is how do I put the brand on the map so that the brand actually as a brand first rather than retail starts to actually introduce people to the brand, not just when they find us in real estate. Right. Right. So that's problem solution. Number one, number two was how do I help an organization that grew out of incredible strengths and a lot of history that I respect of being a good retailer, but what are the business processes, systems, and practices that have to change to say, let's think brand first and then make it channel right. Gotcha. Okay. A lot of times I say it's a little bit like taking marketing and making it instead of the pretty package and the sign or the tail on the dog and moving it to the head of the dog. <laughs> yeah. So we're in the middle of that transformation. And I will tell you two years in, we don't look at all like the same business process of how we identify our next priorities and go to solve them. And that's a huge step in the right direction. Okay. And then the third thing that I was asked to do was then bring the best to bear of this new era of marketing, which is a digital ecosystem in e-commerce, right? E-commerce, m-commerce, but digital media, which today is the majority dollar of anybody's customer journey, right? You're going right. to spend more time digitally to introduce, get sold with, or, or engage with brands you love, regardless of how much time you go to stores. Right. So those, those were kind of what I was asked to do. What's hard about it, which your question, which is, there's a lot is number one is there's a lot to do, right? Um, Because you're doing it on a scale that's very different that has a lot of history and entrenched process and systems and and processes, right? Right. Number two is change is hard. And by definition of sort of making room in the week to be thinking about the brand and be thinking about digital and all the changing landscape of what digital is, is kind of got to be, I got to get white space back from the week that used to be 100% occupied thinking about stores. Mm, okay. Right? So a lot of it is kind of shifting which, pro, which things we don't do anymore so we have room to do these other things at the beginning of the process and then we can do it well across all the channels. And that, that's, that's actually a, a pretty big one. And then the third one that I think, I think you hear about a lot, it's very true in my world, I don't think it's unique to Maurice's, but it's what's hard for every larger retailer that now needs to be an omni-channel retailer versus, let's say, an Amazon, an online-only player. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of history of systems, and the history of systems, systems used to be built much more closed than they are today. Yeah. And we're now, the definition of speed in systems and data is open systems that have easy integrations, and those are hard into old systems. Yeah, so with that, are you thinking you know, system overhaul or integrating with the older system and then eventually a system overhaul when it's, it's a less, you know, bite to take, or I guess, how are you approaching that? Well, Maurice's has got a set of work streams. That's a combination of those things, but we're also one of eight brands across Athena. So Athena as a portfolio has a vision for how's it going to bring its ecosystem of systems into the next generation. Right. So mm-hmm. I will answer you and tell you that all systems are equal. RMS systems, which are our product databases, Mm-hmm. largely will stay intact, but they all have to get integrated with new customer databases that didn't used to actually be a part of the equation because we didn't have them available because that digital system didn't didn't exist, right? So they're getting integrated rather than changed. What's really changing and the heart of it, I think, for most retailers and what you'll hear about, we just launched our new 
e-commerce platform that's an enterprise-wide platform this year called ATG. It's a custom build for Athena. It has a responsive adaptive mobile, which I actually ours will release in January. And it has our first integrated sort of step towards a single view of a customer, which is promotions management. It ultimately needs to be a true client telling tool. and We're not there yet. So mm-hmm. that no matter where you show up and talk to me, I know you as a customer, not I know you as a customer in the store, but not when you're in social media. Mm-hmm. So we're in the middle of that, but we're well on the way. What still is hard for most retailers, and, and it's hard here, not not solvable, but hard, is the cash machines or what we call POSs in all the stores. Traditionally, those have been very closed systems, the way they were built. And a lot of new players, like let's say, take like a Warby Parker, somebody that's small, that's out there that has stores, but using them more like marketing as they're building this ecosystem, more than likely they're using a cloud-based solution that if you have a thousand doors, that wasn't available during those times. And so you can't really just migrate those that's actually what everybody's trying to figure out right now. So yeah, you, I mean, you've mentioned a lot and you came in with three really big focuses and, you know, you've just covered integrating the system, but then also replacing components of the system so that they're open sourced and, you know, aggregating the data to make it, to make it the point of sale better, the customer experience better, and then having that mobile touch point. So there's a a ton of stuff on your plate, I guess, coming in, where do you start? Like what's, what's that first priority that you would start with or that you would recommend even like with all these things? Cause this is what you're talking about. It's pretty common across just the industry, you know, so where, where to start? Well, I start back with the basic building blocks of brand marketing, which is that journey map and say, mm-hmm. which parts in the process of the relationship with our brand are the most important to our consumer? Cause that's what we have to address first. Right. So for example, if you have all these systems going on right now, what I know consumers want from me now is they want to know that no matter where they are, they can get inventory from anywhere. So Mm -hmm. we attacked that first and said, doesn't matter if you're in the store and we're out of your size, it'll ship to you from to home for for free, right? That's on us. That's not on them that we don't have it there that day. That's largely in place because that was number one, what we heard from customers. The next big thing we're hearing from customers is I'm a shopper of yours and I want you to value me regardless of how I'm doing it. So translation to all of that is things like loyalty programs. I want credit no matter where I am with you. I don't want to be limited by channels. So Mm -hmm. now we have a loyalty program where no matter where you shop with us, we're giving you those perks equally. What we're still working on is making it so that when you're actually looking at your wallet online or looking at it in store, we're actually telling you where you are with your loyalty. And some of that is a good example of why we're going to do more of that with mobile because most of our consumers are now that would be their first preference if that shows up on mobile, even if we maybe don't print it on a receipt for you at the store. We're just going to skip that and give it to you where most people are looking now, which is mobile. It sounds like there's a lot of things that, that are taking place right now. And uh, really, there's some catch up to do. I think it's just because uh, they've just been so uh, retail focused and now making the shift to omnichannel. But because digital is moving so fast and all these changes are taking place at, a, at an expedited, exponentially expedited rate, you know, every quarter something new is coming out, mobile is enabling this, and we have... You know, augmented reality that's coming out soon and this Pokemon Go craze of how people are getting out and behaving differently. So like with this, you know, how, how do you prioritize the digital innovation side? And do you focus more so on building the foundation and getting prepped for what's coming in a couple of years from now? Or is it more catch up mode with some of these things that are happening in the now? I wish I could say I could pick either or, but you can't and be competitive. So the age we're in sort of mandates some agility. So we're trying hard, like any, I think, other large retailer I would argue that all businesses, even the online guys, are actually behind where we all thought consumers would go with all of this, mm-hmm. right? Consumers have moved. All of us, think about how differently you purchase. Yeah. So 
we have to use the same principles I've always used. There's certain things that we've said, hey, these appear to now be friction points in our business, which is kind of an infrastructure upgrade. We actually have to get at them kind of like maintenance of our house. Mm. And we're trying to prioritize those work streams. But while doing that, simultaneously pick the one or two things on the journey of the consumers that are most valued by them and really surprise and delight them there. Right. So we're trying to get at one or two on both sides of the equation. All points that are friction are not necessarily you know, equally a problem for a consumer. You might wish that when somebody, you were in a store and you wanted to get product from the warehouse sent to your home, that they didn't have to do a second entry on the POS. Mm -hmm. But if it only takes 30 seconds, it probably doesn't bother you if you don't have to get the credit card again. Ideally, I want to consolidate that, but that might not be one I do this year. Instead, what I really want to do is make sure that your mobile phone has your points at any given time so that you can just scan and know that we're recognizing your value wherever you come from. So I'm trying to balance innovation and sort of removing some of the friction points that come from migrating eras at the same time, but focused on where it matters the most to the customer. And that all goes back to basic market research and journey mapping. So with this research and then journey mapping, you know, I think a lot of the data is also uh, quality data. And with, with that, you know, when going to leadership, you know, they want to see numbers and they want to have a justification to the investment. And so, you know, how do you go about quantifying this prioritization? Well, one of the most exciting things that I've done since I got here, and I'm actually, I think Maurice's is actually ahead of most of its peers in this way, not actually behind at this point, is we've actually built what we call our discovery platform, which is a cloud-based sort of data production environment that allows me to take whether I'm doing email programs, marketing programs, customer survey feedback, or my classic customer relationship management data, mm -hmm. I feed it all into there and I can run analysis on real time and I can actually look at the patterns and combinations of activity for consumers that either shop us online or offline. So we're pretty nimble now at being able to look at it and it has attribution models applied so we can fairly quickly apply value to different combination of patterns and that's really helping us prioritize. It also helps us validate if we go do a focus group, because we think we have the three areas that matter the most, we can actually validate that in the data now. Wow, that's and cool. And say, you know what? Those groups didn't show up more in stores. So even though we heard it in qualitatively, these two other ones actually show in the data too. Can you give like a specific example of, you know, something that was, you wanted to roll out as, as an initiative and how that validated it? Okay. So there's this thing called marketplaces today. They're kind of like in the, in the digital world, they're kind of like digital salespeople, right? Or maybe they're the equivalent of, of a digital version of the mall network, right? Mm, okay. <laughs> and you, within your marketing mix online, you might be trying to acquire customers or find your existing customers and get them to do more. In part of that strategy would be showing up in digital marketplaces, okay? Like, it's kind of like being in real estate where you otherwise wouldn't be found. Right, okay. If you would have asked me before I had this discovery platform environment, if you would have asked me, when I'm out in those, am I likely to be finding people that are going to become new customers to me over time that are really valuable, or are they people that are just looking for the latest deal and probably won't stay with my brand? I probably would have said the latter. Now that I have the data, I can actually see that when I look at all the different ways that I'm finding new people and introducing new people to my brand, I can tell what by group, sort of where they came from, what type of consumer they become to me over six months to 12 months. And what I found is marketplaces most people think, oh, they're just deal shoppers. I'm finding that if you have the right value proposition in your brand, it's becoming a variable, valuable source of a place to find new customers because a lot of them are then returning directly to me and becoming valuable customers. I wouldn't have known that. So is this discovery platform a newer rollout or how long has this been around? I built it with a really awesome partner um, my second year here and we're in our first six months of using the data. Wow, that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, because 
you know, in our earlier conversation, you're talking about, you know, the components of the business and then um, integrating them and so that you have that, that seamless flow of information. And that's where a lot of companies are trying to get to. But it's interesting how one of the first innovations, it sounds like, was to create this like data organization hub so that now you have a framework of knowing how and where to focus energy to innovate. And I think that's, that's a really smart move. And so I just wanted to... Thank you. Yeah, just Thank to... Thank you. We're, we're really excited. We, I think what is really smart as a marketing... I know where to spend my money and how to help activate new consumers or existing ones. What I want to now go finish, which is kind of what I alluded to to all the other pieces, is I also want somebody in a store having the full information of the consumer in front of them, everything I know, at the moment they're helping them. So that person doesn't have to say to them, you know, I always buy this size. We actually know that mm-hmm. at the time. And that's the piece we're still working on. But I think we've gotten at the first pass of data that's really helping us prioritize. So we're very excited. Yeah. So you have this framework and you have this tool to help guide uh, where you're focusing the energy on kind of the, the short term uh, pain points of the customer as you're also building that back in infrastructure. So I'm really curious about, you know, these innovations that you're making that are in the now and for the future. And um, so with that, you know, where do you, where are you focusing uh, the attention for some of these digital channels and making sure that you're making that impact now and where it's going? Because coming from Giggle, that's where you saw that, right? You saw where it was going and you had those omni-channels in place beforehand and it was built on that. So coming from that insight to now seeing where things are going, where, where is your focus at for what's coming in the future? So at the risk of probably what you hear all the time, I'm going to underscore what the topic is for everybody. And everybody on my team knows the number one priority, the theme that overreaches all of our initiatives this year is mobile first. Mm. And the reason for that, and I'm going to be really practical here, everybody's been talking about how quickly consumers have gone there. What I will tell you is it's blown away every one of my forecasts on how quickly it's going there. But it's even more important than that. It is actually becoming very clear that a growing number of consumers, which nobody really argues anymore, right, that there's going to be a lot of digital shopping. We know that. And digital information and and research. How that's all going to settle, we'll all figure out. But we certainly know there's going to be a lot. But I think most people have thought that mobile has been about traffic. What we're seeing happening at a very fast rate is an increasing number of consumers will no longer view anything but their mobile as their computer. Mm. So they're not investing in desktops. So when you think about mobile, amazing that we're still talking about a decade ago from an iPhone perspective, it really was everybody became a cooler phone. And then it became a phone that also had a thing you could search on. So it also had the internet or MapQuest, right? Mm -hmm, right. Now what it's really becoming is your pocket computer. And nobody really is looking towards, I wouldn't say nobody, but if you look at the tiers of income, most of middle America is increasingly moving to make it the primary source of their digital interaction. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a huge shift. Especially with that transaction, it's something like, uh, I think Google released this study, it's like 92% of all shopping experiences at some point in the path take place on the mobile device. And like something like 80% of them start on a mobile device, just understanding and making that connection to the brand, understanding that brand narrative, getting their questions answered and, and doing that shopping from within a store uh, to, to make the purchase. Yeah. So you think about a business like mine, now that I have this discovery platform environment, I mm-hmm. know that 82% of the customers that walk in my store have been on email about what's in our store at that time ahead of that visit. Yeah, that's just invaluable data. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, understanding where that's going and, and uh, mobile first, how do you see mobile evolving, you know, how Marisa's connects with the customer? How do, you, how do you see mobile playing into that next? Well, I'll tell you one, there's kind of three tracks. One track, it's at the most basic level, our entire business processes are changing. I'm only six weeks in to our new fiscal year, we start in August. Mm-hmm. And it's the first six weeks where literally when we do content 
creative review, sort of how are we going to bring to life any story? Everybody now, we, we project up onto the wall a mobile phone first. We design to that. We never did that. Mm. And it's completely changing how we think about framing stories and where they're going to flow through a customer journey, right? So at a very practical level, I can't tell you how many times on a weekday, Monday in my executive meetings, I, I get asked a question, hey, when are we doing this? And I, and I sort of jokingly say, hey, everybody pull out your phone. Like, you know when I'm doing it because it's in your phone in your pocket. Yeah. No. So a lot of it is very, very basic practice. We're starting to be mobile first in how we design, report, and check on our business, right? So that's number one. I would say number two is there's a huge power, and I think this is where it's almost even more powerful mobile is for omni-channel or businesses with lots of retail stores like us with a thousand doors Mm -hmm. than it is, let's say, for Amazon is the power of the geofencing, mm-hmm. what we can know about how a store, by having localized Facebook pages, by having localized content, localized circles of influence, and more than that, localized information about how at a store level that store is doing versus its local market. That's an entirely new capability that didn't exist a few years ago that is the primary, for me, link between digital and offline that will be leveraged a lot over the next couple of years by businesses like ours. So to reiterate what I've heard so far, uh, visual and information. So visual, you have the design, report, and check, and then the information, you're gathering that contextual data that the phone can provide. And so um, are these the two main focuses when you, when you define mobile first or when you think of mobile first, are there other areas that the organization is focusing on? The last one, I would add one more to it, is really our media activation. The, we're a retailer. At the end of the day, we sell products. Mm-hmm. The power of what's happening right now with paid social and social in retailing is huge. And it's disproportionately mobile in its execution, right? So if you look at what I'm going to spend in my media mix, which is anywhere on the journey, right? If it's, I'm trying to acquire somebody or I'm trying to find somebody that's with us and have them do more. The reality is the role that mobile is playing is tripled in terms of impact of where we're going to actually spend media dollars because of what's happening with social, which is very, very tied to mobile activity. Gotcha. Okay. So really connecting in those channels too and, and leveraging where people are at. You know, Facebook is still the 800 pound gorilla and all of that, almost more so today than a few years ago, but it's not that for somebody like us in fashion, Pinterest doesn't matter or Instagram doesn't matter. They do. So are you still thinking of mobile as more so a channel to divert to the dot-com property and, and owning transaction there? Or are you guys making the shift to mobile commerce as well and thinking of ways to add value and monetize the user in, in those interactions? 100% the latter. And I will tell you, I would love to say we all anticipated that. I would say consumers have already been telling us that. Gotcha. Okay. If you look at our percent transactional, like everybody in the industry will tell you today, if you look at traffic, mobile to desktop, traffic's up triple digits, desktop's up usually lower single digits on mm-hmm. a traffic basis. So, you know, eyeballs are going to mobile. What not as many people are talking about is what we all forecasted to be 10, 15, maybe 20% of the digital transactions happening on mobile. Those numbers are now all hitting the 30s and 40s. Right. Yep. People are actually checking out there. Okay, cool. Well, so that's, that's, I was just curious kind of where you guys' shift was taking place. So that's exciting because um, that's definitely yeah. where it's going. And so, you know, to be mindful of time, I want to jump into some rapid fire questions. You ready for the rapid fire round? You got it. All right. So what's your definition of innovation, Allie? It's leveraging creativity, technology, or teams to solve problems that the, at the end of the day, the consumer tells you with their wallet, it was valuable. Love that. And so you've been in the entrepreneurial realm for a while and you definitely have this perspective. So I'm interested, would you put more emphasis on the idea or the execution? And then how would you each weigh with a percentage and why? Execution is everything. <laughs> um, innovation as a concept, 
is less about an idea and more about a philosophy to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. And execution is where you bring it to life because most initial ideas are wrong. They just put you on a map or not. And then the question is, do you execute to find the right point on the map? For me, that's 100% of what it's about. 100% to 0%. Perfect. Well, you've got to kind of have a wall to go to. Yeah. I just don't think it's an idea in and of itself because those original, if you go back to any entrepreneur and whatever they built, what their first idea is is not what they ultimately built that everyone loved. Right. So it's almost more that it's a philosophy of execution. For me, innovation is more a how of execution, but execution and the tenacity around that is when you win with consumers and innovation. So like 99.99% to point yeah, two. Yeah, 99 okay. and one, I'll give you that. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, and so what has been your biggest learning lesson on your journey in retail so far? Oh, I'm reminded after having spent 10 years working with people that were building concepts, as I come back into established big retail that you can't take for granted that change is hard for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I think that's my big thing is that reminding myself that I have to help people move through the process of this um, evolution that I think is hard. And I think retail, you can kind of say that for retail in general, because retail is this sort of historical um, category. Um, So there's a lot of maturity in it um, and it's, Consumers are turning it on its head right now. How about what's your favorite business-related book? Probably one of my all-time favorites is Marty Neumeyer's um, Zag. If you ever read the book Zag, he's a great brand guy. I think he used to work with Kellogg, so I'm biased to my old uh, alma mater. Um, <laughs> but he, it's a great brand aha book. And if you haven't read it, I recommend it called Zag. Yeah, I'll definitely. A really good book I just read, though, you should read. Have you read Zero to One? No, I haven't. You're going to have to pull the author's name. I forget it. It's one of the big founders, I think maybe of PayPal. I forget who it is. Peter Thiel, I think, Peter Thiel. Anyway, he writes a great book about inspiration versus perspiration. How much harder it is to get from zero to one than it is one to 10 or any other number. Huh, that's funny. Yeah, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes and put it in my Amazon cart. I love that sort of uh, philosophy. So how about uh, your it's favorite? It's a good book. I just read it in August. Yeah, okay, okay. Is it a big book or like a quick read? No, both of them are quick reads. Perfect. How about your uh, favorite digital resource? I'm a big fan of Scott Galloway at Columbia's L2. So what's that? Give me your pitch. Scott is, I think, one of the savviest thought leaders in digital marketing meets data meets e-commerce ecosystems. And he understands how all three play together and how they're all distinct in their maturity. Mm-hmm. And he is out there reviewing the industry on a regular basis. And L2 actually produces, it's mostly video-based content, but they're very, they run the most respected, I think, digital IQ survey for specialty retail mm-hmm. every year. Highly recommend it. So uh, you like follow his like blogs and things or L2 publishes his content? You can you can follow L2 on a lot of levels. Athena has a membership, so I get access to the research reports. I will bring their team in sometimes to audit what we're doing and saying, what are we missing in our priorities? But I'm also follow anybody can for no money beyond his weekly blog and you get his video blogs. And he's talking about timely topics. Great. I'll, that sounds really valuable. I'll reach out to him and see if we can uh, set something up and I'll definitely link to his resource in the show notes. So thank you. Yeah, he's great. He's very well respected. He's a regular TED Talk guy. Is he? Okay. I love those type of people. So that's, I'm excited to reach out to him. And then uh, lastly, what's your favorite mobile app and why? My personal app is different than what I thought. In my category, in, in, a, in specialty retailer, I think everybody would recognize Sephora's as one of the best ones. Right. But it's pretty unique to the makeup category. I don't really have an equivalent in fashion apparel that I think is that good. Although some would argue Victoria's Secrets is. It's, it's not my personal favorite. But I think 
Sephora is really well respected as being really smart and useful. Mm -hmm. Personally, having just relocated from New York, I am missing my most used personal app, which was my fresh direct grocery app for my (laughs) life in New York. As a working professional mother who travels a ton, I liked managing my entire life of fresh groceries through an app and fresh direct was great in New York. What is the coolest thing that you're working on right now that you want everyone to know about? So I told you about our discovery platform and what we're doing with data and how I really can tell how people came to us offline or online. What I can't actually do though, I can only see them once they become a customer. So there's a gap for me that if let's say I do six marketing things, I want to know how many people actually showed up my door at the store, not just who purchased because a lot can happen between the door and the purchase. Mm -hmm. So we're doing some very early beta testing with some Bluetooth and beacon enabled um, store clusters to actually start to map identities of sample groups. So I don't just look at traffic as not as people, but actually can tie them back to records in the digital sphere. That's probably one of my most exciting innovations. Very cool. I would say the other innovation that we're doing is we're taking a lot of our data knowledge, which is pretty sophisticated now around consumers. And we're using what I'm super impressed with, which is some of what they call kind of affinity clusters or genomes out of the social data that's coming from people like Facebook Mm -hmm. and learning a lot about where else our people might be based on social data. Um, as we look at it more as behaviors and less as just demographics. And if our audience want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? I'm definitely on, I have all the social handles, probably Twitter or LinkedIn, um, both at Allie Wing. Allie Wing, great. I'll link to that so they can get in touch with you. All right. So check out Maurice to see Allie and her team's latest work. And Ali, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It was a pleasure to, to have you on and to dig into your experience. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join us next for a conversation with Dominique Essig, Chief Experience Officer for the Digitally Native vertical brand Bonobos. We'll dig into the art and science of digital innovation, how they're disrupting the connected shopping experience and a new way to go from click to brick, all with a heavy emphasis on a data-driven approach. And I'm always happy to be a resource in any way that I can. So visit emergemobilefirst.com to reach out to me directly or for additional insights, resources, and bonus tools that can help catapult your organization to the next level. Until next time, think mobile first.